You're listening to audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia, where we believe in preaching the authoritative power of God's Word each and every week. For more content and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org. Go ahead and grab a copy of God's Word and meet me in Colossians chapter 1 this morning. Colossians chapter 1. As we continue in our series, Embracing the Supremacy of Jesus Christ, up to this point, we have defined supremacy is that thing or that person that in your heart and mind surpasses everything else in status, power, and authority. In other words, it's that person or it's that thing that you give permission to have control over your life, to have control over your thoughts, your feelings, your very choices in life. And if you think about it for a moment, your willingness to give something or someone that level of control in life is a pretty scary thought. I remember many years ago, um, I had built, early on in college, I had built a relationship with a girl named Melanie, and uh, she was a good friend, and, um, but she had given herself pretty extensively over to the party scene, party lifestyle, and it was destroying her life. And I remember sitting down with her at a Perkins and just talking with her and developing that relationship with her. And she was sharing of all the abuse that she had endured in the party life and in her family. And this was the perfect opportunity to share the gospel. And I began to tell her about a God who called himself Father. And a Father that loved her so much that he was willing to send his only son Jesus on a rescue mission to rescue her out of this destructive lifestyle and not only rescue her, but adopt her into his family and call her daughter. I remember when I said that word daughter, she began to cry. And I began to ask her just a couple simple questions. Do you, do you believe, Melanie, you're a sinner? Yes. Do you believe you need a savior. Yes. Do you believe his name is Jesus? Yes. You want to embrace Jesus as your savior right now? No. As I kind of waited for a little bit for the dust to settle, I asked her that very simple question. I help me understand. You you know you need Jesus. You know he can rescue you. You know he can heal you. Why don't you want to embrace him? She said, because I would have to give up control. I would have to give up my life, as I know. You see, the reality is, I think a lot of people, they struggle to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ because deep down inside, they know if the gospel of Jesus Christ is, in fact, true, then at a massive level, I'm going to have to give up control of my life. I think a lot of the reason why so many people in the church struggle to find and enjoy the freedom that the gospel offers and provides is because even though we have embraced Jesus, we're still battling with him over control in our lives. It's like we give Jesus the steering wheel of our lives, but we're still grabbing on trying to battle for control. And as a result, we never experience the true freedom that the gospel provides. So here in the book of Colossians, Paul has been extensively arguing for the reason why Jesus is worth, worthy 
to be given that level of control in our lives, that control over our thoughts or over our feelings, the very choices that we make day in and day out. And he continues that argument here in verse 21 through 23. He says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a minister. This morning what I want to do is I want to argue from the word of God as to why today you should joyfully, willingly, and with great urgency give control, total control of every compartment of your life right now to Jesus before it's too late. Are you with me? Father in heaven, God, we come before you. This is a weighty idea. This is a heavy topic. And this is something, control is not something that we just willingly and freely give up to anybody. So Father, we pray that through the power of your spirit, the authority of your word, God, that you would crack through the hardness of our hearts, calloused by sin and self-righteousness and selfishness. You would crack through the hardness of our hearts, penetrate that sin, and awaken us to see why your son is worthy of absolute, total authority over our lives. I pray it for the least of these. I pray it for those who are farthest from you. And I pray it for those who think they're closest to you. I pray for myself. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So what I'm going to do is just give you three reminders today of the gospel as to why Jesus is worthy to have total control of your life. Reminder number one, remember who you were without Christ. Remember who you were without Christ. Verse 21 says, and you who were once, okay? So we're talking to the Colossians who were believers in Jesus Christ had placed their faith and trust in the finished work of the cross where Jesus died on their behalf. And he says, you were once at one point before you met Jesus, this is who you were. Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, I'm not sure about this Jesus thing. I'm not sure about this church stuff. Let's forget about the church. Let's focus on Jesus. Who are you apart from Jesus? He's about to give us a definition. He says, you were alienated, you were hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. Now let's just pause and take a second. Let's acknowledge this. That's pretty strong language. That's pretty strong language to assert that apart from Christ, you and I are alien, hostile in mind, and evil in our deeds. That's a pretty shocking assertion, especially for our modern sensibilities. Are we agreed? So what is Paul talking about here? Let's get some definitions on the table. Number one, what does he mean when we are alien apart from Christ? Alienated means we are isolated. It means we're separated. It means to have this profound sense that we do not belong in the company of a holy, that's key, God. 
That is that God is holy, we are not, and to enter into his presence in our sin, there's something in our soul that tells us we do not belong. God tells us, first of all, we're alienated. Secondly, that that alienation from God leads to this thing called hostility. That is that we're not simply ignorant of God, we're not simply apathetic toward God, though we are apart from Christ, but that furthermore, we are hostile in mind and in our thinking toward our Creator. So we might say, well, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I'm not sure that I'm hostile in mind toward God. Well, go on a college campus and, and start talking to students um, on any secular campus in today's world and start telling them about God. And tell them about a God who's a big cuddly teddy bear in the sky that wants nothing but their best life now and is going to do everything to just make them happy because that's the only thing God cares about. It's just making you happy. Just be good in general. I want you to be happy. And hey, if you need anything, just come knock and I'll answer any prayer request you want. Now that's, that's a God I can get behind, amen? That sounds pretty great, a God that's just basically a, a, a genie. I just rub the lamp and he'll pop out and do whatever I want. But that's not the God of the Bible. When you get on a college campus and you start asserting that there's a God who is holy and will one day judge our sin, and that the only way to be made right with that God is through his son, Jesus Christ, and faith in him and him alone, how are people going to respond? Take it out of the college campus and take that to work. You're going to walk right into the social justice buzzsaw, aren't you? We are hostile in mind toward the God who reveals himself in Scripture because we want a God of our own imagination. We want a God that we can picture in our mind that's like us. But the reality is God's nothing like us. He is holy. And he will judge sin because our God is a just God. And because we are alienated, because we are hostile, we are not only hostile in mind, but we're also even evil in our deeds. Look at what he says, and you were who are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Now hold on a second. What does that mean? Well, the reality is that our hostility in mind toward God doesn't just stay in our mind. It's squeezed out and flushed out in our behavior. That is to say that we are not simply victims of sin, but we are perpetrators and culprits of sin. We are evil by nature. And some of us will object and say, well, I'm not a Hitler, I'm not a Pol Pot, and the reason why that is hard for us to absorb or a pill for us to swallow is because we have taken the category of evil in our culture and we have so twisted it that we don't even know what it means anymore. So now, when you watch the news, we hesitate to even use the word evil because we don't really know what it means. Are you with me? So a couple of examples, Paul unpacks what evil really looks like. And it's not, I'm a Hitler, I'm a Pol Pot, I'm guilty of genocide, but he he unpacks it in chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Follow along with me as I read aloud. 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Idolatry is the rejection of creator to the worship of creation. It's to say that I love the creation more than the creator. That is idolatry. And on account of these, the wrath of God, the settled judgment of God is what? It's coming. And these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. You see, the reality is you and I, apart from Christ, are evil in our deeds. And this is what it looks like. They might say, wow, hold on just a second, Pastor Matt. This is my first time coming to church, and this is pretty extreme. I, I'm, I'm not sure I've ever read these verses. I mean, was Paul maybe having a bad day when he wrote this? He eat some bad chicken wings? Or, or is God just kind of like this divine grump in the sky? And like, I, I'm just not sure I can believe in a God that would be this grumpy. Well, here's why this is hard for us to swallow. I want you to imagine with me for a second that we're an orchestra and each of us play a different instrument. And the conductor gets up and he raises up his baton. He, here, here we go. I got something here. He, he raises his hands. He gets the, uh, the orchestra ready and he raises his hands. And on the first note, the most awful, terrible, ear-piercing sound comes out of the orchestra, and he says, stop, 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 stop. And you realize that every single person in the orchestra is completely and totally out of tune. So what do we do? What do we have to do? We've got to tune up. We've got to get in tune. So what's one way that we might do that? Well, I might look over at Ryan over here, and I might say, well, you sound in more, more in tune than I am. Here, let me tune to you. Okay, and so we get tuned up to each other, but what's the problem with that? He is out of tune as well. But see, here's what we do in our culture. We tune ourselves with ourselves, and that's why culture and society continues to go downhill, not uphill. Because as we tune ourselves with ourselves, we just get more and more out of tune, but we keep trying. So we tune ourselves to each other's morals and ethics and values and behaviors and reason for living in life. And this is why our culture here, just talking about America, I mean, just think about it, a couple of specific examples. Our cultural opinions on sexuality and sanctity of human life have changed so drastically over the past 20 to 50 years. Because we're tuning ourselves to ourselves. Hey, what do you think? What's your thoughts? And what do you feel? And how do you, what makes you feel good, right? Are we tracking? The reason why your teenager at home seems to change personality every single week and has split personality disorder is because he or she is trying to tune themselves to something in their, not, not everybody is like this. But many are because they're trying to tune themselves to something in the culture and it keeps changing. Well, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try on this identity. I'm going to try on that identity. And it changes all the time. And parents are just like, I have no idea what's going on with my kid, but 
We ever wonder why Christianity is no longer the key influencer in America? I mean, am I right by saying that? Now, there was a time in America where Christianity was the key influencer. There was a time in America where uh, the, the morals and the ethics of America in general pretty well overlapped with what the Bible taught. But as we have continued to tune ourselves with ourselves, those, that overlap has shifted to where now Christianity is an outlier and is not only rejected as an influencer, but considered dangerous. Why? Because as we tune ourselves with ourselves, we don't become more like God. We become less. So what is the solution? What is the solution if we are alienated and hostile and doing evil deeds and we can't tune ourselves with ourselves? What do we need? Well, we need something outside of ourselves that's always tuned and never changes. We need something like a tuning fork. If you've ever played an orchestra, you'll know that a tuning fork is the one thing outside of the whole orchestra that never goes out of tune. And in fact, it says on here, true C. This is the thing that everybody tunes itself to. Outside of the orchestra, it never changes, it never goes out of tune. And that is why apart from Christ, we can never tune ourselves properly. That is why we need Jesus. That is why our culture needs Jesus. And that is why you this morning need Jesus. Because you are wrestling your way through this culture, trying to figure out who am I supposed to tune myself to. I listen to the news. I listen to my friends. I listen to the culture. And I can't figure out who I'm supposed to tune myself to. And Jesus stands outside of it and says, without me, you're never going to figure it out. But with me, I will tune you right up. And you will sound beautiful. That's why we have to remember who we are apart from Christ. Secondly, we have to remember who we are with Christ. Verse 22. Now let me say this. If this is who we are apart from Christ, why do we keep trying to hold on to control over our lives? If we can't tune ourselves, if we're alienated and hostile toward God and evil in our deeds apart from Christ, why would we try to hold on to control? Well, reminder number two, remember who you are with Christ. Verse 22 says this, that is that he, that is Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, that is you and me, holy and blameless and above reproach. Let's find out who we are with Christ. He says, first of all, that we're holy. The word holy means to be set apart and cleansed. Back during Jesus' day, there was this... um, I don't know if it was a virus or a bacteria or what it was, but there was this epidemic called leprosy. And if you contracted leprosy, I mean, you kind of know what it is. Um, I mean, if you contract it, things start to fall off, right? It's, it's bad, and your skin turns white, and it's nasty. And it was highly contagious during Jesus' day. And so, and there was no cure for it. And so, in Jesus' culture, if someone had leprosy and somebody saw you walking along the path and they had their kids with them, what would they start to do? They would yell. They would scream. Unclean. 
unclean. And what it would do is it it would cause everybody to step away and to get as far away from you because they knew if I get anywhere near you, I'm going to contract this thing and it's going to destroy my life. And Jesus says here in this text, that's what sin is. That's what sin does. It is contracted through birth. We receive it the moment we are born and it destroys our lives and it causes everything to fall apart. And what Jesus has done is he comes He makes us holy. He cleanses us of our sin so that when God sees us, he doesn't yell unclean. He says, come near. He says, number two, in Christ we are blameless. Literally, that term means to be without blemish. That is that sin ruins value. One of my favorite shows, this might date me a little bit, but one of my favorite shows, and I've probably shared this before, is Seinfeld. I love Seinfeld especially George Costanza. George Costanza is one of my favorite sitcom characters of all time because he's so neurotic. I remember this one episode called The Sweater. George goes out and he's shopping at uh, this discount store or uh, this uh, department store and he finds this a beautiful cashmere sweater. I mean, just, it should be hundreds on hundreds of dollars, but it's marked like 80 to 90% off. And just like, this is amazing, this beautiful sweater, and it's awesome, and it's so cheap. And he's looking at it, why is it so inexpensive? And he notices on the bottom, there's like this tiny red dot. Now, you almost can't see it, but it's one of those things that once you see it, you can't unsee it. You know what I'm talking about? And so he buys it, and he's going to give it as a gift to Elaine. And so he wraps it up, and he takes it home, and he gives it to Elaine, and Elaine gets the sweater out. She's like, oh, this is amazing. George, you're so cheap, but you got me this amazing sweater. Thank you so much. She puts it on. Oh, it feels amazing. Wait a minute. And she sees the red spot. And she takes it off, and she's furious with him. Furious that he got her a cashmere sweater with a dot on it. So by the end of the episode, George takes this cashmere sweater, and he literally can't give it away. Slightly soiled, greatly reduced in value. And that's what sin does. Sin destroys your value. The value that God intended for you to have being made in his image, sin comes in and it blemishes you and it distorts you and it ruins your value in this life so that you cannot be everything that God has made you to be and you cannot do everything that God has made you to do. But what Jesus does is he comes in and he washes you and he cleanses you of all those blemishes and he gives you value in this life. There are some of you right now who are sitting in this auditorium, you're like, I don't have an ounce of value in me. If you know what's been done to me, or if you knew the things that I have done, you would know I have no value. I would say, come to Jesus, and he will make you priceless, blameless. Notice what else he says in this text. He has reconciled us in his body, verse 22, of death by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach. Above reproach means as if you'd never sinned. As if you had never sinned. There's, there's, a, there's a question here. How many of us have never sinned? Actually, if you answered that, you're lying. Uh, how many of us haven't sinned in the last week? Or how many of us haven't sinned in the last 48 hours? Or maybe the last two hours? Like if, if you can manage the last two hours, let's do this. 
How many of us would be willing to take just the sins over the last week that we've committed? Or maybe you don't believe in sin. All the dumb stuff that we've done, self-destructive stuff that we've done, selfish stuff that we've done, and flash it up on the screen. How many of us would be game? I'll offer you $100. Anybody? Nobody. Why? Because we're not above reproach. There's not a single person in this room that's above reproach. So look back at the text. How can God call us holy, blameless, and without reproach? How is that possible? How is it possible that a holy God that cannot allow sin into his presence can accept you and I who are not above reproach, who are not without blemish, and who are not holy? How is that possible? Look again at what it says here in the text. Verse 22. He has now, what's that word? Reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. The reason why Jesus Christ died on the cross was to reconcile us with a holy God who hates sin and will judge it. But Jesus Christ in his death on the cross paid the debt that your sin has incurred so that you can be forgiven and set free. So that in verse 22, you are reconciled. Reconciliation means to pay a debt so that enemies can now be friends. The fundamental nature of what, what the cross does when you come to the cross by faith and you trust what Jesus has done is for you, not just for people in general out there, but it's for you specifically that Jesus thought of not just everybody else, but your name on the cross. What that does is when you trust what Jesus did was for you, for your sin, for your stupidity, for your unrighteousness, for your hostility. When you believe that it was for you and you embrace that by faith, what it does is it changes the fundamental nature of your relationship with the Holy God. You go from convict, perpetrator, guilty to forgiven, adopted child. So that none of us in this room are guilty. Or, I mean, let me take it back. All of us in this room are guilty. All of us in this room this last week have committed sins against the holy God. But if the fundamental nature of your relationship has been changed from convict to child, a convict's going to run from the law. But a child runs into his daddy's arms when he's messed up. Because he knows, daddy will never leave me. Daddy will never forsake me. Daddy will never turn me away. Daddy will always forgive me. Daddy will be patient with me. And daddy's going to help me change so I don't continue to do the stupid stuff. That's my daddy. How does that happen? You have to be reconciled to God. And so I wonder how many of us today have been reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ he shed on the cross. If you have never been reconciled, Be made God's child today by faith. Simple. In light of all of this, let me ask you, is Jesus worthy of total control? Is there anything God can't ask of you? 
I remember listening to a sermon by Tim Keller, and he was talking to um, a very accomplished um, New York woman, elite, very smart. And he'd been sharing the gospel with her. She had been coming to Redeemer Presbyterian for some time. She'd been hearing the gospel, and she, she stood there with Tim Keller, and she said this about the gospel. She said, Tim, I want you to know that grace terrifies me. Grace is unmerited favor. It's unearned, undeserved favor from God, right? I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. Mercy is, if I punch you in the face, mercy is to not punch you back. Grace is to take you out for the steak dinner. Are, are we tracking? Okay. She says this, grace terrifies me. Because if the gospel is true, if, 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 I can, if I can earn my way to heaven, if I can make myself right with God, and if I can do that on my own, then there's a limit to what God can require of me. There's a limit to what God has asked of me. Because it's like paying my taxes. I paid my taxes. You can only ask of me so much. But if there's nothing I can do, and it's already been done, there is no limit to what God can ask of me. And that terrifies me. But that's the gospel. That Jesus Christ didn't just pay some of it. He paid the whole debt. And it's right for us to grant him control. Control over our calendar. I know how some of us are about our calendars. Don't you dare touch my calendar. I am in control. Oops, where did I go here? New technology, I'm learning. He has the right to be, control your career. How about your relationships? How about that person that you know you shouldn't be spending time with, but you can't let them go? Because you feel like it's going to change you as a person somehow. What about your sexual appetites? Say, Pastor Matt, I am what I am. I can't change that. Are you saying that Jesus can't rule over the very appetites of your soul? Everything. How you use your body, where you spend your time, how you think in your mind, and what you watch on TV and on your phone. Does Jesus have control of it all? And if not, why not? Isn't he worthy? Why hold back? So the third reminder then is this. Everything's falling apart on me here. Reminder number three, remember, remember the difference that Jesus has made. Verse 23, it says this, if indeed you continue in the faith, watch this stable, steadfast, and not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard. Now look back again, it says this, if indeed you continue in the faith. Now it kind of sounds like Paul is making some kind of conditional statement here as if, well, if you perform well enough, if you have faith strong enough, if you stay in there and locked in long enough, that you're going to make it to the end and Jesus is going to let you in. Is that what Jesus is saying here? No, not at all. What is Paul saying here? He says this, what got you into the kingdom is how you live in the kingdom. The faith that saved you is the same faith that will stabilize you in this life as a believer. 
The faith that saves you is the faith that stabilizes you. Look at the three words that Paul uses here. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope that is in you. He's describing a faith that impacts our daily lives like a building. A building that is built upon a firm foundation, that is stable, steadfast, not shifting, that doesn't move, doesn't crumble, is not unstable in the midst of storms, difficulties, and the challenges of life. Why? Because of our faith in Jesus Christ. So it begs the question then, why does it seem like so many unchristians are unstable in this world? You ever wondered that? Why do I feel like I have so much instability in my own life? I can't tell you how many times I've been asked this question, Pastor Matt, I, I, when I first came to Jesus, I was on fire for God, passionate, unhindered, bold for the gospel. I was telling everybody about Jesus, but it just feels like that fire and that passion in my life has gone out and it's withered and it's, how do I get that back? How do I get the feeling? Have you ever been there? Amen. How do we get the feeling back? Look what it says here in the text. If indeed you continue in the feeling, right? What do we chase after here? Feelings or faith? So here's the problem with your feelings. If you continue to chase after your feelings, we've had this conversation before. If we chase after our feelings in the Christian faith, we are going to be unstable our entire lives. If you're chasing after God because you think he's going to constantly make you feel good in every situation you are in, you have signed up for the wrong team. Our God is not a God that will spare you from suffering. Our God is not a God that will spare you from difficulty and pain. Our God is not a God that will spare you from sorrow, but our God is a God that will walk with you through it and stabilize you in it so that you can be a testimony for God in this world. We don't chase after our feelings. We don't let our feelings rule and govern us. We chase after our faith in Jesus Christ. That is a willingness to obey the promises of God no matter how I feel in the moment. That's what faith is. And that's what stabilizes. It's acting on God's promises no matter how I feel. And when it comes down to it, when I don't feel like acting on faith, but I do it regardless of how I feel, that is the functional way in which I give God total control of my life. What happens as a result is that God stabilizes you. I can tell you from personal experience that giving up control, I like control. I like to be the alpha dog. I like to be in charge. I like to be able to bark orders and people go where I tell them to go and do what I tell them to do and blah, blah, blah. And, and you know what? God in my life has had to battle with me hard for control because he says to me Matt you can't be the alpha dog in this relationship but this isn't going to work can anybody anybody else am I the only one up here that's like a, like I love control I love control in my family and I love control in my church and these are the two areas in which God has most profoundly said Matt you can't have control and so what he did is he gave me a child that was just like me. 
And he gave me a child who's a sanguine, who is the type of person that says, hey, rules apply to you, but they don't apply to me. And so anytime mom or dad draw a, a line in the sand, that line is only there for our child to tip her toe over and say, see, you can't control me. Now, here's what I can do. If I love control, how do I parent my child with an absolute total commitment to control, to a child that won't be controlled? Well, I have to overpower, and I have to dominate, and I have to use anger and intimidation to control a child like that. But if I do that, what happens to that child? I may mold her externally to what I want her to look like, but what's happening to her heart on the inside? I am embittering her. I am embittering her toward the Lord. I am embittering her toward the church. And one day, when that moment comes where I can't overpower and dominate and control and get more angry than her, she will explode out of our influence and abandon everything that we have taught her to value. Have you ever seen that? That's why children who grow up in the church oftentimes rebel. Is because instead of giving up control ultimately to the Lord, we try to control them and craft them into what we think they're supposed to be. Now here's the fine balance. I'm still responsible as a parent to teach my child right from wrong, good from evil. Amen? But how do I do that a different way? How do I give up control to the Lord? Well, here's what I do. I'm gentle with my child. I'm patient with my child. I enforce right from wrong and good from evil, and there are consequences, but I don't yell them. I don't slam doors. I don't get angry with my child. I'm patient, kind, and gentle. And when my child says, Daddy, I can't do what you're asking me to do, I look at them and I say, I know you can't, but there's someone who can help you, and his name is Jesus. Do you see the difference? I'll tell you what, one of the struggles of my life has been, I, I want to control how fast and how quickly our church grows. But the reality is I can't control that. I've tried. I've tried. So I get intense and I get angry and I yell when I want things to happen. And the reality is it just never gets us anywhere good. I was reminded, <laughs> I got a text message from a friend of mine. Can I go for a few minutes more here? Some of you are looking at me like, how much longer? <laughs> Give me one second. I got a text message this morning from a friend of mine. If I can get it to pull up. A reminder of how little we as pastors have any control over anything. And frankly, should not try to control our churches because Jesus says, I'll build my church. I'll build it in my time." I got this. Just chill. I got this text from a buddy of mine this morning. Brandon Capuano, in fact, I preached at his church last week, and he texted me this. I'm walking into worship, in the worship center this morning, 
someone comes up to me and says, hey, Brandon, you got a minute? I respond, nope, not at this moment. Well, do you know why Marty and Rhonda left the church? Brandon, nope, person. They said it was you. To which he gave me a, a meme with Steve Harvey and said, what's wrong with you? A reminder that I have no control over this, and neither do we. God is in total control. That's why when, when we have 27 people show up for prayer, that's 27 people saying, we can't change anything in our church, but you can. You have total control. I can't change anything in my child's heart, but God, you can. You're in total control. So I'm not going to parent from a place of anger. I'm not going to parent from a place of law. I'm not going to parent from a place of high demand. I'm just going to parent from a place of patience and waiting on God to change my child's heart because I can't do it. You're in total control, and I give it to you. See, that's what God is asking from all of us over our career, over our calendars, over children, over church, over everything. God wants total control over everything. And when that happens, when he is given that control, he stabilizes our lives. Is Jesus worthy? But it's the hardest thing in the world to give up, control. Trust me, I would know. So a couple of things as we close out here, a couple of questions. What is it that God has laid on your heart right now that you need to give up? Control over what? And how do you do that? Well, right now, we can just bow our heads and close our eyes, and we can acknowledge, God, I've got control over this thing, and I know I need to give it to you. God, would you take it? So let's bow our heads and close our eyes and just take a moment as we respond to the Lord this morning. What is it in our lives that we need to give up control for? Is Jesus worthy of that control? Do you believe that he can take that thing and do something better with it than you can? So maybe just acknowledge to the Lord right now what it is. And secondly, tell him, God, I want you to take it. I want you to have control. The thing we have to recognize about control is giving control over to somebody else isn't an event. It's also a process. It's a process by which you have to keep giving control to somebody else day in and day out. So maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your calendar. Maybe it's your career. Whatever it is. Number one, grant him that control. God, this is yours. Number two, say, God, I commit to daily giving this to you so that you can have total control over my life. And number three, maybe you're here this morning and you say, I'm not sure about this Jesus stuff. I'm not sure about this eternity stuff. At some point, you're going to have to give him control over your eternal destiny. He's the only one that can reconcile you to his father. But you got to give him that control. I've been saved now for 26 years, and I can tell you this. Jesus has always been good to me. 
He's always been faithful. In every season of life, I've granted him control. He's never let me down. He won't let you down either. Father, we come before you, and God, we just ask that you would take total control of our lives in every little detail. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia. For more audio, content, and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org.